This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Blue Research. Knowledge sharing on financial research. Welcome to today's podcast. I'm Swaha Patnaik, Head of Publishing. Our topic for this edition is one that's going to keep European Union finance ministers very busy in the coming months. How to change the EU's budget rules and ensure they're neither too strict nor too lax. It's a crucial question right now. First, because the European Central Bank is going to be raising interest rates and will leave it to governments to support struggling economies. And second, because getting these budget rules right is essential if investors are to keep faith with the euro, Europe's single currency. With me to discuss the problem and potential solutions is Tristan Perrier. Tristan is an economics insight specialist at the Amundi Institute and has recently co-authored a paper on this very topic along with Pascal Blanquet, chair of the Institute. Hello Tristan, great to have you with us. Hello. So, can you start off perhaps Tristan by telling us what exactly is the problem with the current EU budget rules which are known as the Stability and Growth Pact? Well, the fundamental problem is that both the debt amounts and the economic regime are no more uh, the ones that, uh, that uh, stood at the time where these rules were designed. In terms of amount of debt, uh, most countries' debt-to-GDP ratios are now even more so after COVID, are now well above the 60% threshold. In terms of economic regime, uh, well, low rates have meant that uh, much larger amounts of debt proved to be sustainable than was thought uh, 20 years ago. Uh, And then there is also the fact that monetary policy due to low rates uh, and low inflation hit the zero lower bound, which meant that uh, more fiscal stimulus was necessary. And then uh, recent events have in fact shown the need for uh, a lot more public investment uh, for uh, to address a number of topics, which can be uh, sovereignty, health, it can be the reduction of uh, in social inequalities, and of course the greening of the economy. And then the, the rules as they uh, stand uh, seem to be now somewhat restrictive to make room for this necessary investment. Exactly. And in fact, they were too restrictive even during COVID when they were suspended so that governments could do what it took for the good of public health and their economies. But this is not the first time that the Stability Pact is being stress tested and found wanting. What were the problems with the changes that were made in the past that's got us here, but still aren't enough to make this a good set of rules? I can see at least three problems. Uh, first, the first problem is that adding more rules to the rules made things even more complex, therefore raising a communication issue with the general public. Uh, another problem is that uh, these new rules, even if they were intended to do so, never really uh, did away, got away with the problem of procyclicality of the rules, meaning that uh, if you have deficits due to a recession and you try to reduce this deficit, then you make the recession uh, even worse. Uh, And then a third type of problem has to do with the credibility because uh, within the rules there's also a sanction mechanism that despite the many breaches, these sanctions were uh, never uh, enforced. So to address some of these problems, you and Pascal Blanquet have come up with a package of suggestions of how to reform the pact. Now, inevitably, some things are going to be easier to agree on than others. So let's start with the easy stuff, so to speak. What are the, some of the changes that you think could be pushed through relatively 
quickly or easily from a political point of view? Well, let's say that starting with the pure uh, legal point of view, it is obviously difficult to uh, drop the, 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 the two main ratios, which are the 3% deficit ratio and the 60% public debt to GDP ratio, as these are annexed to the Treaty on the Functioning of the European Union. However, uh, it is uh, much more easier uh, and possible to change the secondary legislation, which governs the interpretation of these uh, uh, rules and how to uh, go back to these uh, ratios uh, if, if you are in a situation of breach. So what could be done is a revamp of this secondary legislation. And at the heart of this uh, revamp, there could be a focus uh, on a simpler uh, sorry, spending rule, meaning a spending rule meaning that uh, countries should not, in principle, spend more than or see their public spending raise more than potential growth. Potential growth is the pace of growth that an economy can, in theory, sustain over uh, many years, over the long term, beyond the cyclical fluctuations. So most of the complex deficit rules could be replaced by this, by a focus on this uh, spending rule. And then this spending rule could work in combination with a medium-term debt objective meaning that uh, in a, in a country-specific framework, there could be a debt sustainability analysis conducted uh, uh, um, along a uh, uh, stochastic process, meaning that a number of scenarios would be tested in terms of probability to determine whether uh, the debt level has a good chance to be sustainable. If the uh, country's uh, debt level is below the level that is considered to be sustainable by this uh, analysis, then the spending rule would apply, meaning again that uh, public expenditures should not raise more than potential growth. If the debt level is above that uh, sustainable level, then uh, the country would be required to do some uh, adjustments. So this, these are this combination of a spending rule and medium-term objective, while keeping the uh, ratio, uh, the 3% and 60% deficit and debt ratios as long-term objectives, this uh, change in the secondary legislation is, is probably uh, the, the, the best uh, way to start with. Perfect. I mean, this is obviously giving those people in the fiscal hawk camp who want to make sure that there's a, a long-term sustainable foundation for the euro, something to chew on, but also giving some flexibility. Having said this, you are also proposing a few things that are going to be a little harder for both camps to swallow, perhaps. Do you want to run us through those? Yes, indeed. So we think that there are also a number, there have been actually a number of proposals over the years that should be uh, considered and, and studied further, even even of course, uh, even though of course they are a bit more difficult to uh, implement, and uh, at least from a political uh, standpoint, but also uh, from a technical uh, standpoint, uh, a first way to go a bit farther is to exclude some forms of investment from the uh, spending rule or whatever fiscal rules uh, are, are reinstated. Uh, of course, this obviously uh, opens the, the way to the, the path to some forms of moral hazard, as a number of governments could easily claim that just any form of public spending is a way to prepare uh, for the future. Uh, and we are, of course, conscious of this problem. However, we also believe that uh, essentially, uh, actually, thanks to the experience of the NGEU, uh, the euro area, the European Union has gotten better at carefully selecting and implementing a number of investment projects. So we believe that this idea of uh, exempting some form of investment 
spending from the, the fiscal rule should not be dropped altogether. Then other uh, slightly more complex uh, uh, proposals would be uh, to, to uh, again consider uh, a proposal that was made at the beginning of the uh, 2010 decade, which is a two-tier debt system, meaning that uh, countries would uh, issue two types of debt. It's called so-called the blue debt, red debt system. A first tranche of the debt, for instance, the, the, the one that is below the 60% of GDP threshold, would be guaranteed by the uh, EU, and then debt in in and would be senior, would have a senior status, uh, and then debt that is issued in excess of this uh, ratio, called the red debt in the initial proposal, would be uh, junior, and with the possibility that it could uh, default. That therefore would be two yield curves for uh, each country, and due to the fact that the country uh, that has a debt above that uh, pre-agreed threshold would need to pay a higher interest rates, this uh, corresponds to a built-in sanction mechanism, which would require, in fact, no uh, action from the other uh, European members and, and therefore would constitute a de facto sanction system, which would be depoliticized. Uh, so that could be uh, a way, although we are, of course, conscious that it raises major uh, technical issues, implementation issues, transition, uh, tra uh, the, the transition process would not uh, be easy. And it, it, we would also need to consider the interaction with existing uh, other existing EU and ECB uh, schemes. Uh, and together with that blue debt, red debt system, which could also be considered is an orderly uh, default process. So if we have a two-tier debt system, it would essentially apply to the red debt, the junior uh, debt. And of course, that uh, orderly default uh, system would uh, help prevent moral hazard and would mean that uh, countries could not systematically bet that uh, either other EU budgets or the ECB would step in to uh, bail them out. So we, we assume that if, if the incentives are carefully crafted, it could also uh, reduce the moral hazard and increase the general credibility of the system. As you say, this one might be a little harder to work through because of the problems with the ECB. But Definitely. yes, you absolutely flagged that. Uh, having said that, what are the advantages of your approach? You've already pointed out that you're trying to think of solutions that will be less pro-cyclical, i.e. making the deficit worse at the same time. I mean, that your economy is in problems and you aren't allowed to help basically with government help because you're just making your deficit worse. What are the other benefits of your approach? Well, I, I guess it, it would definitely be less pro-cyclical. And that is a key uh, advantage as this, this is one of the really built-in flaws of the uh, current system. Then it would be uh, less restri restrictive. It would make room for that necessary uh, investment that uh, the consensus now believes Europe needs to face a number of, uh, of uh, long-term uh, challenges. Uh, it would also be much more understandable and communicable to the uh, general uh, public. Uh, so these are, and it, if, if again, if well crafted, if the incentives are well designed, uh, it would also be uh, more credible and more uh, realistic than uh, than a quick return to this 60% uh, debt to GDP uh, ratio, which is which is extremely difficult to implement at the at the moment. So we believe that, of course, depending on the on the proposal that is considered, uh, the, the the resilience of the euro area could be uh, greatly improved. So I want to come back to the credibility issue in a moment. Let me just ask you to make it a little concrete for our listeners. What sort of things do you think count as um, viable projects that should qualify 
for these exemptions when you're looking at debt, that they should be parked to one side and not calculated as part of the measure that people are benchmarked against? Is it education? Is it sort of green transition projects? What sort of things do you think should count? I think I think the easy answer uh, to this uh, is essentially focused on on two themes. Uh, theme one is the uh, greening of the economy. There's a large uh, consensus that uh, these things are needed, and it's relatively easy to uh, isolate an identified project that would serve this and uh, just this. The other uh, item has to do with the other theme has to do with uh, sovereignty. So there are many ways, uh, there are many definitions to uh, sovereignty, but uh, let's say that uh, autonomy in terms of a number of critical supplies and also in terms of defense uh, spending are uh, needs that have been clearly uh, brought to, to, to light given uh, recent events. So this would be the easiest uh, in terms of education and in terms of reduction of social inequalities. Uh, of course, you, you could think of ways uh, to exempt uh, this from the, from the rules, but then uh, it probably opens uh it would probably opens to more uh, debate and and disputes over what is actually the right strategy to pursue such complex uh, such complex goals perfect let me come back to the really important point you were making on credibility because one of the problems you identify rightly with the stability pact is that it's been more honored in the breach than in the observance you pointed out countries have broken the 3% deficit limit for years on end without sanctions kicking in of the sort that were designed at the beginning to be punitive. How would you get around this problem and improve the credibility? Well, first of all, there is no uh, absolute easy answer to this. Okay, It, it, it is not a, not a completely federal approach. So at the end of the day, uh, states are sovereign. I think I have mentioned that blue debt, red debt system, which would, I believe, if carefully crafted, have a, have a clever built-in uh, sanction mechanism, which would not uh, lead to uh, I- I- immediate intense uh, not require an, an ex post decision by other uh, EU members and, and th- therefore probably would make uh, sanctions less uh, politicized. There are other ways. Uh, you could think, uh, for instance, of positive incentives, meaning that instead of punishing, you could uh, determine that compliant countries have a privileged access to a number of EU funds. So that would be a, a way. The other way uh, is to reinforce, uh, to beef up all those uh, organizations which are more or less independent from the state. You call them independent fiscal institution, fiscal uh, watchdogs. Uh, of course, at the end of the day, you could argue that they are never fully independent from governments, but therefore, they, uh, notwithstanding, they could have the power to uh, delay or uh, even to suspend the application of the budget if it does not uh, comply with the rules. So this giving more powers to these independent uh, institutions through, through many uh, different uh, schemes is a, a way to... Uh, to probably achieve a better enforcement. Uh, harsher options have been proposed, notably uh, the fact that uh, the fiscal process could be uh, could, 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 could be brought under the jurisdiction of the ECJ, which it is not uh, at the moment. Uh, this is probably a bit uh, too, too, too much in our view, uh, knowing that uh, at the end of the day, if a country is in trouble because uh, it has its debt becomes unsustainable, this has major, this may have major spillover on its neighbors. So uh, the, the, the fiscal uh, process should remain uh, under, the, under the, uh, the scope of governments and it is an intergovernmental process that should, and not a court of justice that should have the final word. 
um, I should say for the listeners who aren't aware, the ECJ being the highest European court, the European Court of Justice, to which everything, if you finally appeal, it's the finest of final appeal. Um, um, let me ask you, so suppose, let's suppose the Stability Pact is successfully reformed, takes on board some of the ideas that you've been mentioning, but is a good set of budget rules fit for purpose at the end. What are the implications for investors, for financial markets, if that's the case? The first implication we would see is the reduction of the general risk premium that we believe all uh, European assets actually, be, be they uh, public sector or private sector, carry due to the perceived fragility and complexity of EU institutions. So if, if you move to a system that is considered more resilient, more credible, that risk premium should be uh, less uh, in comparison with assets of, with similar comparable assets of other uh, regions. Then it can also be argued that if you you make room uh, for more investment and if you have a process to carefully select those investments that will be uh, beneficial to productivity, then uh, European assets should also uh, factor in, their prices should also factor in a higher uh, potential growth. Uh, so which would be uh, beneficial for uh, the price. And then there would also be uh, a change in, in some patterns uh, of investor behavior that have been observed uh, on the markets for years. Uh, for, uh, investors have uh, gone, grown, gone into the habit of actually factoring in the ECB reaction, trying to calculate in advance what is the level of yields of spreads that will be intolerable before the ECB uh, steps in. And if you reduce the probability that there is this uh, type of uh, intervention. If you make more room for a market sanction, then uh, this would allow investors to focus more on each country's economic and financial uh, fundamentals and making bets on the reactions of these uh, intra-governmental or EU-wide institutions. Perfect. Well, you were talking about sticks and carrots before. I mean, it's definitely a carrot to reduce the borrowing costs by reducing risk premium for finance ministers to get this right. Thank you very much, Tristan, for pinpointing some of the problems and outlining some possible fixes to them. Thank you all for tuning in today. We hope you'll join us again next time. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.